0: Welcome to Crosstown, and welcome to our series called Catching Your Second Wind. It is really great to see you guys. Some of you were a little concerned about where I had gone. Uh, I, you know, People started sending out messages wondering where he was. Other of you were like, I actually had somebody say to me when they saw me here this morning, they said, so that little girl isn't going to preach again? And so I'm like, "I'm uh, all right. All right. I can handle that. I'm a newly enlightened man, so I can handle that. But it really is great to see you all here across town. We have—I got to brag about you guys a little bit. Um, first of all, uh, we, we are doing the Bear Foundation book bags for foster parents, foster children, and we announced it like two weeks ago that we had all these book bags that we needed to fill, buy, do all this other stuff. Before the end of the second service, they were all gone. We actually had people in the church angry with us that we had robbed them of an opportunity to give. So yeah, you need to give it up for yourselves. That is really, that is absolutely amazing. Um, then there was a whole group of you that went down and worked with Habitat for Humanity and helped build a house. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, who does that in the middle of the summer? I guess people like you. And I also want to tell you that you as a church are supporting a missions team that is going to Burma on Thursday now, this missions team is doing medical missions. You have paid for most of the medicine that will be given out in Burma in just a week. So I want to salute you for your generosity and that what you give, what you do, makes a really big difference in the world around you. So I mean, I'm just so proud to be the pastor of this church. Let me, we did a couple things this week that were really interesting. One, we held City Hall here. The Mayor, City Council was here. It was a hoot. I mean, I mean, it was just absolutely funny, people getting angry, you know, a little bit of cussing going on. Um, but it was just amazing as they did City Council. But there was a time when people could get up and they could talk and they could say, "You know, I don't like the world and some of the other things going on it and and so they they came up, well, this one lady comes up over there. And she was kind of like a bohemian kind of gal, you know what I mean? So she just got up and she said, Wow, you know, I think it's really cool that we're having this meeting here. And what is this anyway? Is, is this like Jesus goes to Vegas? You know? And I, I just yelled out, I'll take that job. You know, anytime you can serve Jesus and do Vegas at the same time. I, I think that works for me. But it was absolutely amazing um, to be able to be used that way. But one of the other highlights is that we held the Dutch Dialogues. If you're not familiar with that, the city has employed the Dutch to come over to the United States because they have over a thousand years of experience dealing with water to help kind of map out a solution for Charleston. Well, we have been a part of that dialogue with them. I've met with the engineers. They've been at the church. But because we became so vocal and because we did our own engineering study, well, the Dutch asked if we would actually host the Dutch Dialogues for the first day and for the first night. So this building was loaded. And we had some amazing volunteers that came out and helped us serve these people. We had pretzels for them, drinks for them. We had beautiful little water bottles that we gave to everybody that came. We had the place done upright, and they gave me an opportunity to do their opener for the first five minutes. And um, by the time it was all done with, one of the lead engineers of the city came up to me with tears in his eyes, and he said the Dutch Dialogues would not have been a success if it wasn't for Crosstown Church. The Dutch came up to me afterwards and said, we have never gone to a place offsite that has been so welcoming, accommodating, serving, and technologically savvy as Crosstown Christian Church. Yeah, yeah, so I want to, so we're not some stupid church that just needs to get out of the way. I think we have established ourselves. One of the solutions that's come up—I I got the opportunity to go to the meeting where they gave one of their prim, primary or preliminary reports. Um, one of the suggestions for the peninsula area is going to be to continue the barrier wall that's down at the battery, to continue it all the way around to the medical district, and then all the way around to the ports authority. So surrounding it with a giant wall. And I know that you're just like, "Hey, that's crazy!" With these these people doing, but who's gonna pay for that? Well, they actually showed us numbers that five years of flooding in Charleston, the amount of business that we lose in repair we have to do would pay for that wall, so that we could go on with the insanity doing business like we do now, or we can begin to do a solution. But one of the ideas that came for the Church Creek Basin where we're located at ground zero is that every piece of property from zero feet to about six feet in height, which is the slab height of our property right here, in the basin should be bought out. Um, there will be some new restrictions on how you can build in other areas. It's going to change the way that we do building in the Church Creek Basin, but I think everybody realized it needed to happen. So w- one of the things that came out of it was, well, it's, it's like, wow, OK, it looks like Crosstown's going to get bought out. But the, one of the leading engineers came up to me and said, listen, we don't want to buy you out. And I'm like, OK, why? He said, because you're too good for the city, and we don't want you going anywhere else but right here. Uh, and I tell you, you know, that, that kind of jazzed me a little bit. You know, uh, we are called to be a city set on a hill, and he goes, no, we'd, we'd rather burn the whole property and make it so that water can't get you, but we don't want to lose Crosstown. So I just want to let you know, I want to, first of all, thank you for your dedication. I mean, you've, you've let me lead over the last three years in anger, doubt, confusion, and then you've allowed me to develop a curve of understanding where I am now a registered hydrologist uh, on TV, Um, (laughs) I I appreciate your patience with that. And, And second of all, I thank you that you realize that the mission of the church is not just the poor. It's not just about marriages. It's also the mission of the church is in the sciences. It's in the environment. It's how we live together. That taking care of flooding is not an engineering solution. It transcends engineering. It is a love thy neighbor solution. And they see Crosstown leading in that dialogue. So give yourself a hand for being amazing. Man, it's great. So we're, we're using the summer as a season of catching our second wind. And we, we talked about how the scripture... Uh, always uses running as an illustration and how it's an allegory of our faith. So the Apostle Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians about getting their second wind. They'd experienced some challenges. Paul had had some adversities that had been going on, and combined with the normal struggles of life, he really felt that it was necessary to help them get their second wind, kind of to breathe again, to, to kind of get more of God again, more of the Spirit, more of hope in their lives again. And, and one of the key verses that comes out of it in 2 Corinthians 4, it says this, Paul says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So our objective and our theme has been that through God's wisdom and spirit, we're going to re-energize our faith, our hope, in the middle of the affliction. We, we learned a couple weeks ago that you can't de-afflict the world. That I would love to have a Christian faith where God comes down and takes all the affliction out of society and out of our lives. But that's not what God's offered. God has offered us comfort in the middle of affliction. He's offered us his strength, his love, and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. And that's what this series is all about. So in track, and, and I was a track runner. I was, wasn't big enough for football. So track was really the thing. I, as a matter of fact, I tried hockey. I was a... Uh, uh, a right winger, if you're, uh, you're from the northern areas, uh, I was a right winger in hockey, but I really wasn't a good hockey player, I was like a, a B class, C class hockey player, and we were state champions, so that the coach came up to me and said, listen, um, you're probably going to be on the bench until your senior year, so, um, but I've seen you run, you're a really good runner, and it was really cool as a freshman in high school to have somebody tell you you sucked at something, and then... Uh, encourage you to do something else. Well, I was the kind of person that, hey, all right, no problem. And then it turned out running went really well for me. So I've done a lot of running, did a lot of track in high school and in college. But when you're in a race and you're at the competitive level, they they use this phrase that you're seated, okay? Um, it, It means that based upon your rankings, how you've done in other races, it determines what lane you're going to start your race in. So when I would do indoor or outdoor track, because in the Northeast they have indoor track, that, based upon your performance, they look at your races and then determine if you're going to have, like, pole position, whether you're going to be in the best position, or you get to choose what lane you want to be in, and lanes on a curved track obviously makes a big difference. But in a road race, this would be equivalent to getting your starting position. in in the front or in the middle of the herd, And, and even in Charleston at the Cooper River Bridge run, they will try to break up the group based upon your mile times. And then there's a front area of runners that you actually have to be certified. So, you know, Joe Schmoe just can't, you know, who's to a few beers the night before and hasn't done any training and he's got his ankle socks up to here. He can't just stroll to the front of the line, you know, with a big giant headband from the 80s and then decide that if you got the visual image of this guy that I'm talking about, then he can't just stroll to the front of the line. But rather there's a qualification that has to go on that's basically upon your performance, and that you're you're always performing. And as you go into the next race, you qualify for the bigger races. So you're only as good as your last race, and you always have somebody gunning for you or for that pole position or for that place in front of you at the beginning of the race. So the Apostle Paul had a stretch of challenges that began to exhaust him. He began to feel that pressure of having to Constantly think about the next race to prove he was the best. He always he was beginning to get that pressure that I think a lot of us get that that he had to prove that he was seated in the right place that he deserved to be in the front. He had um, planted this church in Corinth and th- things had gone real well, but after he had left them for a while, uh, people began to question whether or not they should be listening to Paul and even after he had proved who he was and that God was moving through him, they began to question his his position, his pole position, whether or not he really should be in front. And and they began to question their beliefs and their understanding of who Christ was. So he felt this pressure. And so he responds in 2 Corinthians 3.1, and he says this to them. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again to you? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Hes like, I way back to the place where I have to prove something again to you, that I have to commend myself to you. Have you ever been there? Have you ever, have you ever been in that place in life where you feel the pressure that you always have to be on, always on? Or you always have to look the best. You've always got to look the best. Um, or, or maybe it's, it works in your life this way. Maybe you're exhausted from having to hide the face that is not really perfect. Maybe you're constantly under the pressure of having to prove to people around you through a series of song and dances and achievements and looks and and physical physique or success in finance to constantly commend yourself to people. I deserve to be here. I have a right to be seated where I'm seated. I have a right to be an individual. Or, Or maybe you're at that place where you get so exhausted by having to constantly hide the fact that you're not perfect. Paul tells us about someone who had that exact same pressure. And it's interesting. It was Moses. When Moses goes up up the mountain in Exodus 34 to get the Ten Commandments, a really interesting thing happens. I wish I had video of the event. But when he goes up and gets the Ten Commandments, he meets with God. A couple days go by. It's kind of like a time-space thing happens there. And he comes down. He's got the Ten Commandments in his hand. But there was a, a secondary effect that took place because he had been in the presence of God. His face glowed. I mean, it was just like, I mean, you wouldn't want to see him at night. He would have scared the heck out of you. But his face glowed. And it glowed so much that Moses was asked by the people to kind of hide it because it was a little scary. You know, can you imagine, like, walking into a party? You know, you're a little late, and all of a sudden your face is glowing. And, I mean, it's just radiating the glory of God. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it did it but he decided finally that he would put a veil over his face so that it wouldn't scare people. But then something interesting happened, and I think this is where it begins to speak to us. The glowing of his face began to fade away. So after this encounter with God, the, that glory started to fade away from Moses. But he had hidden himself with the veil so that people wouldn't see it and he wouldn't scare it. But, but Moses, as it begins to fade away, does something really interesting that I think is very, very American, that is very us, that is every one of us. He keeps the veil on. Because now, instead of hiding the glory of God and, and, and not scaring the people, now the glory is beginning to leave him off of his face, and he's hiding the fact that it's diminishing. See, God forbid that any of us lose a step. God forbid that any of us begin to lose the glory that we used to have. And Moses experienced the same kind of pressure. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 3.12. He says, Moses, who used to put a veil on his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. We have no idea how long he wore the veil, but we do know That it hid the glory that was fading away. Was he now hiding the fact that it was gone? We don't know for sure, but we do know that the glory faded away out of his life. See, this is the dialogue for us today. Because fading glory and the pressure to constantly commend ourselves produces exhaustion. I'm serious. It is exhausting to try to constantly get the spotlight or to get people to notice you or to to be considered valid or to be considered equal or whatever the pressure is. It's exhausting to constantly have to do it. Commending yourself is a real job. Constantly trying to convince other people that you deserve better. I should be in the front of the line. Or that you belong. Or that you're normal. I mean, if you ever, I, I know this may sound like a really big idea, but I think we, we do, we wrestle with this on a very practical level. I love going to parties. I was at a really nice party last night. And I saw what I saw, always see, and, and I'm very much a part of. Is always the photo shoot. Now, with Facebook, that means everybody's going to see the photo. There's some person at the party who's going to post the picture. So there was a, a photo shoot for all the ladies in the group. And since I've raised all daughters, and I, I, I know what is about to happen. I, and, and ladies, please, I don't want to stereotype here, but whenever, a, when did, was there a school that all ladies go to that when you get a photo, that you do this, this thing? <laughs> Is that, now I don't know what the option is, you know, I mean, I don't know if you, but it's like, so I was watching the photo shoot, and all the ladies in the photo shoot were like, like this. It was like, it didn't matter where they were and life, it was like, everybody's tilting their foot just a little bit. I mean, can you imagine a bunch of guys doing that? We should do that. We should take that photo. Um, yeah, now don't worry about these lights that are flicking kind of crazy, that, that just happens when, when the building gets hot upstairs. Uh, we, you know, it happened. So don't worry about that a little bit. So one, one of the other things that I noticed, <laughs> see, we wish this building would burn, not flood. <laughs> yeah, because I remember the fire marshal guys, you're you're really lucky, the church didn't catch on fire in the middle of that flood. Yeah, and that's not luck. You know, it's like, oh, I wish that thing had burned to the ground. The the insurance policy is so much better. But... Uh, my family has a routine. I won't tell you who does this, but I will say this, that the routine is that uh, one of them does this before taking photos. Okay? I won't say who they are, but one of them does this. Okay? And I think it's so, well, I can't say more, but I think it's just so they make their eyes look perky. Okay? So I, whenever we're taking photos, that's right. Then one of them does this. You know, they get a little bit of red in their face and all. There's this whole routine. I'm like, we're just taking a photo. Now, I can't make fun of it, though, because all the kids will tell you that every time a photo gets taken at the Rienzo house, I have to see it before it goes on Facebook. And you say, why? And I'm going to tell you, this is as carnal as it can possibly be. I have an ex-wife. And I want that woman, 31 years later to think, this is what you're missing, baby, okay? (laughs) Childish, absolutely, but I I will tell you this. You know, it's exhausting trying to always commend yourself to the attention of other people, to get their approval, to measure up, to make people think that you're normal or good enough. Then there's the other thing that we do. And it comes with faded glory. And, and this manifests itself in a couple of ways. It, but it produces hiding. We don't feel as good as others, so we hide stuff about us. And a lot of us here are really good about hiding. We're veil wearers. Some of us are too, too ashamed to admit our struggles. You know, in the middle of the Dutch dialogues, I wanted to give everybody permission that, because I knew it was highly energized, that if they cussed in the building, that it would be okay, that, because I had to do a little sermonette about what a real sanctuary is. That a sanctuary is when, when individuals decide to love the Lord God with all their heart and their neighbor as themselves. So resolving flooding is a sanctuary. A building is not a sanctuary. And then I told them, I said, don't worry about cussing, I do some of my best cussing in this building. Some people laughed, and some people were shocked. And the point is, is that I don't wear a veil for anybody. There is is no secret home life to me. You see the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of everything about my life. It is too exhausting trying to pretend. It is too hard to constantly hide, and I think some of us, We've hidden the abuse that we've been through. We've hidden the struggles that we've been through. We were told that we had to hide or otherwise we would lose our pole position. If people really find out who we are, what we struggle with, that will no longer be seated right. We will lose our position. You know, and hiding is something that we've been doing from the beginning. In the story of Adam and Eve, after their compromise and their relationship with God, they tried to hide. It's, it's what we do. It's what kids do without even being taught. They know to put their hand behind their back with the cookies. Now, they're not smart enough yet to get the chocolate off around their lips, but they can hide the cookie. You don't even have to teach it to them. In Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then their eyes, both of them, were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made covering loins for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, first of all, they were naked before the ape, and they were naked after they ate. The nakedness wasn't the problem. That's kind of like a weird twist that Christianity got into about being naked and all that stuff. But being naked wasn't the problem. But the fact that they now had lost the functionality of relationship with God because there was conflict going on in that relationship, they decided to do what you and I do. We hide. We hide from God and we hide from one another. But the crazy thing is is they went and got a fig leaf and they sewed it together. I'll let you work on your own visual on that. But you can imagine that it was a little bit irritating, but that's what their solution was: was to hide. And I don't think we're any different. We just do it with cooler stuff. We do it with fashion. We do it with gym memberships. You know, we really think that if we have six-pack abs, um, that there's something that we can finally come out from hiding. Um, we do it with success, that if we make a certain amount of money, that we can, we can take a, s- a seat in the higher position, we can be seated better in society because of our money and our success, that when we walk into a room that people would talk about, people do it with education. See, some people aren't just smart, some people are just hiding. They got all those degrees, some people really wanna help other people, some people just want the degrees because it's a, it's a fig leaf. And it's a little bit less irritating than, than a plant. But it's just a new thing. I mean, it's, it's just this, the same idea. But then some of us are also responding, like when ha- Adam and Eve, they hid from the presence of God. Some of us are dark. We have that darker personality, that standoff personality, the nonconformist personality, kind of um, anarchist type of personality. We're not going to have anybody controlling us kind of personality. You know what? It's just another fig leaf. It's just another mechanism to try to hide from the reality of who we are. Paul knew about fading glory. And let me just throw in here. I am now 60 years of age, and you'll hear that 100 more times. But if you're over 60 or if you're over 50... You, you're beginning to taste fading glory. Okay, I, I found a box in my garage that I didn't even know I had, and I pulled it out. And old photos of me on the track team in high school, back in the military, you know, uh, photos of me, you know, competing, running, and all stuff. I was like, oh my goodness. And, and I started seeing awards that I had won and all this stuff. And, and you know what? Every one of us are going to have to deal with the equation, whether it's physical ability, intellectual prowess, beauty, um, influence, success, whatever it is, we're all going to have to deal with fading glory. You know, And so the Apostle Paul knew what fading glory was, but he also knew about something that didn't fade. And he called it the unfading love of God. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says... Such is the confidence that we have toward Christ, through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, you know, to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. See, that doesn't fade away. I don't have to earn the pole position. I don't, I'm not only as good as my last race. He goes on to say, in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not hiding anymore. I'm not afraid of what you think about me. And let me just tell you, this is not an affirmation of all the things that we do wrong. This is also not an invitation for you just to remain as quirky as you are. But any society that forces any people to hide who they are is not a Christian society. Okay? I'm not approving of any of, of all my lifestyle or anybody else's lifestyle, but I do know this, is that a garden where people hide is not the Christian nation God wants us to be. God wants us to be able to deal with, the, with these issues through his grace. Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not see, Gaze at the outcome of that which was being brought to an end. See, Paul did not fall for the commending himself and hiding cycle that I think a lot of us are in. And if God can get you to step out of that cycle, I'm telling you, it's going to be a good summer for you. I mean, it really is is going to be a good summer. If you can just take a break of worrying about what you look like in a bathing suit, you know, Everybody has the right to go to the beach. You know, not just hot 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds. I challenge every 50-year-old man with hair on your back, it's time for us to go back to the beach, (laughs) okay? It's time for us to go back to the beach. But I'm serious. So many of us are hiding because we're broken. So many of us are hiding because we were victimized. So many of us are hiding because we have addictions or because we're afraid that somebody will find out something about us. But Paul said, I don't have to be afraid of that anymore. I don't have to commend myself to you and I don't have to hide from you. And you don't have to do it either. And here's the secret he gave us. 2 Corinthians 3.16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. See, receiving mercy, the mercy of God and the spirit of God, begins a freedom that removes the veil. We don't have to hide. We don't have to commend ourselves or prove ourselves to one another. Every photo of us doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to fake it till you make it. Christian authenticity is receiving the grace to live with the history of who you are, the weaknesses that you have today, and understanding the promise of enjoying who God says you are right now. That's what Paul meant. If God be for me, who can be against me? And it is through the power of God's love and His Spirit that we begin to live new lives unveiled. If you gotta keep the veil on, it's going to exhaust you. If you have got to constantly prove yourself to everybody around you, it is going to wear you out. So as we move into this moment of expressions, let me just ask you a few questions. Are you exhausted from constantly having to prove yourself? I know I am. I mean, are you exhausted trying to commend that I'm a good person? I'm loved by God, or I'm good too, or or I'm valid. It's kind of like all of humanity has the middle child syndrome. Trying to prove that we have a right to be in the family and that we're just as good as the firstborn and the baby. Let me ask you this. Are you spending most of your time looking for a new fig leaf? Or are you living veiled under shame? It is exhausting trying to always sell the idea of you, especially to you. I, for years, have tried to sell myself not only to you, but the person who buys in to me least is me. I'm always trying to sell me to me. But God wants to change all that. He wants me to rest in who God says that I am. He wants me to rest in his future for me. And he wants every one of us to do this. He wants us to live unveiled lives, because we have an unfading glory, which is the love and the mercy of God, which is the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can face our our past, that we can overcome our weaknesses, And that we can discover who god thinks we are right now and we don't have to prove anything to anyone it's all been resolved through the cross of christ father as we enter into this incredibly revealing and precious and safe moment god we open ourselves to you and we come up for communion and we receive the unveiling of grace in our lives. That As we take that bread and dip it into the cup, we remember the one that was rejected so that we no longer have to walk in shame, that we no longer have to hide behind the veil. But on the very day that you were crucified, we are told that the veil in the temple was ripped asunder, that there was no more hiding, that we could boldly approach the throne of grace in all of our needs. So we enter into this safe moment of belonging. Thank you. Let me encourage you, whether it's through communion, whether it's through just a time of sitting and just reflecting on God and inviting God into your life and, and unveiling yourself first to him. Maybe it'll be a moment in prayer with one of our pastors that you need somebody to help you rip the veil. Or maybe you've already experienced that joy and this is just a moment of giving and worship or in giving and offering, but let this be a moment where you allow God to once again walk through the garden and to come and find you, and that with open arms you receive him into your life.